Welcome to IBBA Insights, providing expert advice on buying or selling small businesses. IBBA Insights is presented by the International Business Brokers Association, the world's largest nonprofit organization for those helping others sell or buy businesses. Now, here's your host, Press Diglio. When people think of franchises, the first thing that pops into their mind is McDonald's or Subway. The truth is franchises are far more than restaurants. In fact, if you name the industry, there's probably at least one one franchise group associated with it, if not more. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, approximately 11% of all businesses in the United States are franchises, accounting for almost $1.5 trillion in sales across various industries. So people automatically think about franchises when they're going to start a business. Well, I'll start up and I'll buy a franchise and we'll build it from the ground up, which is great. But today we're going to explore the sale of existing franchise units, getting a better understanding of what that means, what's involved in the sale of a franchise, what are the components of a franchise and everything in between. So those that are established and have been servicing clients and generating revenue for years, those are the type of franchises we're going to talk today. So as always, when we talk about a topic on the show, We want to talk about the person who could bring you the most information in the best way. So my guest today is the founder and CEO of the Franchise Brokers Association, Sabrina Wall. And in 2020, the Orlando Business Journal named Sabrina one of the top 20 CEOs of the year. And I've known Sabrina for well over 10 years, and I'm excited that she agreed to be on the podcast today. So Sabrina, welcome to IBBA Insights. Why, thank you for having me, Chris. No, it's a pleasure. We've known each other for a while, and you know, if I have a question on franchising, uh, although I have a franchise background, you're one of the first people I reach out to and email or call and you're always there for me. So if you don't mind, there's a lot of things I want to jump into. So if it's okay with you, I'm just going to start throwing some things your way. Let's go for it. All right. So let's start off with the basics. Someone owns a franchise and they're thinking about an existing franchise, they're thinking about selling it or there's even someone that's involved in the sale of the business and they're thinking about taking it to market. The very first thing that comes to mind, does the franchisor automatically have the right to buy the existing franchise? Does it have to be offered to the franchisor first? Well, it depends. Just like any marketplace, each franchise is its own unique business. And while they have kind of some parameters that they all operate by, they get to choose certain pieces of how they run their business. So some franchises have what's called a first right of refusal in their agreement. And so the first right of refusal says, if you're going to, as a franchise owner who's operating the business, if you're going to sell that business, then you have to first offer it to the franchise before going out to market. And that is something that is in some of the franchise documents. It's rarely exercised though. Most times they don't uh, use the first right of refusal. And sometimes it will have inside of there uh, information that relates to what the multiple will be if they sell it. And so if someone is considering a franchise, that is one of the things that they want to look at and see what that multiple is and also check to see if the franchise has a lot of corporate locations. Because if it has 
more corporate locations, it would be more prone to buy that back because it's naturally operating that business and they're used to and set up to run those businesses uh, on a repeated basis. Whereas if the franchise doesn't run any corporate locations, and then they're usually not going to want to pick up the franchisee's location. So in, the mo in most instances, it's not even really an issue because the franchise allows the franchisee to, to you know, sell their business and operate it without that first right of refusal in there. But in that rare case, then you just want to check those two things. You know, I love that answer because part of your answer basically led to doing some homework. So whether you own the business or you're looking to represent the business going forward, you could do a little bit of homework. So I'm going to date myself. Back in the day, 25 years ago, when I got into the business, when we looked at franchising, we had to look at the UFOCs. And now it's, you know, the FDD. So if someone was going to do a homework about taking a particular franchisee to market, what documents should they look at and where are they going to get a lot of their information that's going to kind of tell them the things that, you know, the things that they need to know? Well, if they're looking at buying a new license of a franchise, I assume that's what you mean, but if they're looking at buying a new license or buying an existing business that is a franchise, that franchise disclosure document, or it's abbreviated as FDD, the FDD is Oh my gosh, it is a huge document. It's arduous if you're not yeah. used to reading them. It's <laughs> long, legal, boring, but it's also so enlightening because these documents are required by the Federal Trade Commission for all franchises. And they basically require the franchise system to put everything on paper as to what their track record is. So if you know what to look for in those documents, you can really be intelligent about the decision you make with the franchise. You can find things like how well does the leadership team work together? You can find how they handle conflict with their franchisees. So other people in the system in the past, how have they worked through those issues in the past? And you can see that in the document. You can also see how much it's going to cost, how much you need to budget for each line item of opening that business. It shows you how much, in, in many cases, what the ongoing fees are and how much the existing owners within the system earn. So it'll give you what's called an item 19 or a financial performance representation. And that document, that item in the document, it basically allows the franchises to provide historical proof of what the franchise owners have earned. So they'll present it in a lot of different ways, but sometimes they'll say, we're going to show you what an average revenue of everyone in our system is. And that's less valuable than some of the others that provide information like, here's an entire P&L breakdown of a top performer, a mid performer, and a low performer. Those are highly valuable because you can actually see your line items to create a pro forma with and to work back in the financials and figure out what the cost and revenue opportunity is historically with that business. And then the, the FDD also includes things like the 
retention rate of the franchise. So we have a little calculation that tells us here's what the retention rate is with that brand over time. So we can see brands that do really, really well and they keep their franchisees year over year over year. And we can see brands that their whole business is just to sell franchises because they are churning <laughs> franchisees. They're just losing as many as they're gaining in a given year. And then it shows you things like what the business model is of the franchise. So some franchises have a stronger proclivity to really invest in their franchisees' financial success. And so when they the franchise is highly focused and attuned to grow the revenue of the franchise owners in their local market, that tends to be the best kind of franchise. And you can actually see that in the document because you can see their business model. And it's a very, very cool and creative and interesting document. Once you really get, get into it and understand what you're looking at, it tells you so much about how that brand has performed. And it's something that you can reliably count on because it is regulated. That's great stuff. And I appreciate you not laughing at me when I mentioned that when I got into the business, they were using the UFOCs. So <laughs> that was very kind I of me. I think I did laugh. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, now it's laugh out loud. So, so let's go on. So time is probably the most valuable thing that we have and the one thing that we don't want to waste. And in going through the FDD, we can learn a lot, as you said, but one of the things, if you're looking to sell your existing franchise, or if you're looking to represent an existing franchise in the marketplace, we talked about, okay, the right of first refusal. But Sabrina, are there franchises out there that can dictate at all? Is it that if you were to resell your franchise, that it has to be resold through through their group or their office or their franchise where they have a where they have a resale department, or is that an option that they might have, but it's not something that you have to do? Because the last thing you want to do is start working on something and then all of a sudden realize, well, you can't, you're not able to work on that. Well, there's two parts to that question. One, all buyers have to be approved by the franchise. So there is added complexity in this type of transaction as compared to a traditional buyer-seller arrangement of an independent business. Because in this situation, you have to have the buyer and the seller and the franchise all be in agreement and approval for the process. In most cases, the franchise does not have a resale department that restricts the franchise owner from using a business broker. There are some franchises that do have resale departments. Those are typically the larger franchises or kind of the conglomerate types of franchises that have many brands under one umbrella, they may have a resale department, but usually you don't have to list with the franchise system. There are benefits to going through and working with their resale department in that they know the brand and the model, but most cases it's not going to be a hindrance for the franchisee or for the buyer to buy without that resale department. Sabrina, if someone owns a franchise and they decide they want to sell it and they hire a franchise broker or a business broker to represent them and they engage their services, 
how soon during this process should the broker contact the franchise to establish the relationship? I would say pretty quickly. They, they need to be working with the franchise department right away because anytime you have a buyer, the buyer needs to be going through the franchise sales process. And that franchise sales process can be anywhere in the best case scenario. It's going to be maybe four weeks. In the worst case scenario, it can be four months. And so you want to make sure that the franchise is going through their process and talking to the candidate as well and making sure that they, you have everything that you need and that you're in alignment as the candidate or the buyer is going through that process. So I would say if you have this opportunity, the, you're under contract to present, or if you're a business broker and you're under contract to represent a buyer, I would reach out to the resale department of the franchise. And if they don't have a resale department, um, then go ahead and ask who would be handling that discussion, the discovery process, and then get with that person to identify what of the process they're going to take because each franchise system does it a little bit differently and the it's important to know what that is before you go and do all this work because they may have they may be taking a lot of the conversations in-house and then kind of managing that process so you need to know what their role is in it and it's really simple you would just call the franchise and ask who handles the resale, their resales and how you would talk to or who you who would handle that discovery process. Now, I think I found the important thing in dealing with the franchises and the franchisors throughout the years is making that initial contact and having that relationship because by nature, unfortunately, the, the franchise groups typically have had bad experiences with business brokers because Business brokers, they're working with buyers, they can't find anything for them, so they send them over to the franchise and as a last resort, which are usually pretty bad candidates but for a franchise anyway. But if you look at the resale of a franchise and the buyers that are coming in for an established business that business brokers are dealing with, business brokers on the flip side have had some issues with the franchises because they send them buyers and they, for whatever reason, they, they don't buy that unit or uh, that existing franchise that's being represented by the broker, but the franchisor flips them in to a new unit to open up something, you know, in a territory that hasn't been established. So trying to repair that relationship and making things, you know, mutually beneficial for everyone is so important. So like anything, I think you reach out, you, you make the connection, you understand the process and let them know that you're there to work with them, not against them. And I, and I think it, it all works great. So Sabrina, when we're looking at an existing franchise that someone's going to sell or a buyer's going to buy, we look at the franchise agreement. Are they transferable? And if they are, you know, who at that point is typically responsible to pay the fee, the buyer or the seller? Franchise agreements, it depends. Again, every situation is a little bit different. Some franchises will allow for that agreement to be transferable. So in the case that it makes sense for the buyer to have to transfer it, maybe they have lower royalties or something, then um, there's about usually about 10% of the transactions, they'll actually transfer the existing agreement. 
in most cases, about 90% of them though, they will actually start a new contract. Um, and the, the under the new contract, it releases the seller from any obligations and it allows for that new buyer to start fresh within the franchise system. And they sign for typically a 10-year contract with the franchise system, which, I mean, if they're starting out their business, they want that full length of time anyway. They would have to pay two fees if they extended the existing agreement because they'd have to pay a transfer fee. And then in like, let's say five years, whenever the agreement is finished, they'd have to pay a renewal fee. So it works out for them to have a just a new agreement in most cases. So each buyer would have to look at their options. So does the franchise allow for transferable and then get the fees for the transfer, the fees for the renewal, and then the franchise fees existing at that time, and then figure out the cost, which one is going to be, which option is going to be less expensive for them and which option is the seller willing to do. Understood. It's almost like when you're dealing with a landlord for a lease, you can go in and there's two years left on the lease and you're going to take those two years and or do you go in and you say, you know, let's establish a new lease and with put a new lease in place with a longer time frame and maybe things that are mutually beneficial or agreeable to both the landlord and the and the and the person coming on board. So I hear what you're saying and I and I know I ask you loaded questions sometimes because there are a lot of yeses and nos, or in most cases, but that's what we're looking to just get an understanding of, of what the benefit is. And I think that was a great answer. So now we have a buyer that we have a listing of a franchised educational business. And we have a buyer that, that comes in and makes an offer and it's accepted. And now we've, we have to get the buyer approved by the franchise. So we make that introduction. But along the way, a buyer also wants to do some due diligence because again, it's a brand, it's not a brand new unit. It's an existing business with ongoing revenue. So there are books and records. So someone's going to come in and they want to do some due diligence on a established franchise business that they're buying. I know there are some benefits to being the franchise to be able to look at someone's books and records or at least verify their sales. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I know there, there are things such as the royalty fees that are paid and the sales that are reported. Does that help in the due diligence compared to a non-franchised business? So with an individual buyer, let's say you're, the person is a franchisee and they're going to sell their business, the buyer of that business or the potential buyer is allowed to look at the tax returns and the profit and loss statements. That's standard with any business transaction franchising or not what they get in addition to this uh, that is they get the franchise disclosure document which shows not just what that business is doing but what all the other franchisees are doing in the system and that financial performance representation so you can see what other people how far they've taken it and I, I always like to see what the potential is for the franchise what who, who else in the system has been able to achieve higher results than the existing business owner and if they did it what did they do that was different was it a special circumstance or was it something that we could rec replicate in our market with that business so you do want to look at both the standard things plus the item 19 
And then you can also see in the franchise, they have to audit their financial statements. And so you can see different points of value that they're providing in their finances and how strong the franchise is and how they make their money and things. So you do have more information with a franchise um, than you would with a just a traditional business. And as it relates to some of the fees, like the royalties and the marketing fees that are associated, maybe even a technology fee that are in the sale of a franchise, those fees pay for real benefits. So oftentimes those royalties, they're paying for call centers and research and development, and they're paying for the technology and they're paying for software and they're paying for the ability to reduce administration. And we have one brand that, or one group of brands that they have this system where they get these rebates for their franchisees. So they're getting rebates that equal some their royalty costs. And that type of benefit and value is pretty impressive because you've got this revenue stream of the rebates from the vendors, just buying your equipment and your supplies, you're getting rebates from that and it counteracts the royalties. But in addition to that, you get everything that you would have gotten for the royalty fees. So all that extra support and technology and training systems for your franchisee or for your employees, hiring systems. I mean, there's so much that a franchise can provide in value to their franchise owners. And you want to look at that paradigm to see what are you getting in return for those royalties. Most franchises are going to provide a lot of value for those fees that are being paid. So even if you weren't paying for them through the franchise, you'd probably be paying more for them if you were doing an independent business because you'd not only have to get that, that, those services, but you would also have to be the one that was doing all the processing of all of that and all the trial and error and systems, it wears into your profit. So those fees, they balance out in the real world practice and actually give, in my opinion, the franchisee a, an advantage over independent business owners. And that was going to be my next question to you relating to that there. So for the buyer's point of view and perspective, you're getting a lot for the royalties that you pay into. You're buying into a proven system that, have a, that has a lot to offer, that gives you a lot. I would imagine, Sabrina, that's why when a franchise business goes up for sale, the resale of an existing franchise, the multiples of those businesses to the earnings are typically greater than that of a non-franchise business because of everything that comes into play, the name recognition and all of that. So there is value for the buyer, but also to the seller. When you go to sell, you you hope to uh, achieve something greater than what an independent business might get in the marketplace. Absolutely. And we've seen the trend of that where a bunch of equity investors and private equity are coming into the franchise space and not even just buying the franchise systems, they're buying multi-unit operators of franchisees. So it's kind of a unique paradigm that, you know, when I started, there was nothing like that. I just never heard of something like that. But now it's really common that you're seeing these people come in 
and buy franchises that have that recurring multiple and have have that recurring income that makes the multiple higher. And it's becoming more and more popular. So I think franchising is a massively growing segment and it's getting even more streamlined and a lot of attention is happening in this space for sure. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because when we talk about the sale of a franchise business, most people think a single unit, but you're right, there's single unit, there's multi-units, there are area developers, there are master franchises out there. So can you talk a little bit about about both? Because there are, and the more that you control, the more value you have when it goes to a resale. An area developer, when when something like that goes to market, which it hardly ever does, they sell quickly and they sell for very large multiples. Yeah. So the you've got a single unit. So that's a one person who is buying one location and running and operating that location. Then you've got multiples. So that's any two or more. But typically, a, you're going to be considered a multiple from two units to about 10 units. And that multiple, that multi-unit operator is going to have a, layers of management and additional scale. They're going to have a a lot of opportunity in that uh, business. And then you've got the area developer. So area developer is usually 10 units or more. And so that's somebody who's kind of taking a whole market and a master franchisee is somebody who buys an entire market. So they'll come in and they'll buy the rights for all of Houston. And then they will sell individual locations and multi-unit to franchisees in that market. So they will recruit and sell the franchisees, and then they provide the support for those franchisees in the local area. So the master model can be extremely effective for having high levels of support for the franchisees, the unit franchisees in the area, and it can be extremely effective for really developing a market. And it's a highly lucrative model because a master franchise system, you're you're earning money almost as a kind of subsidiary of the franchise system. So you're acting as like a local hub of the franchise. So you get a portion of the royalties and a portion of the fee. There's a lot of incentive and annuity streams that are created in master franchising and because of that, the multiple becomes higher because it's got that recurring cash flow component that makes the business more and more valuable. So I want to touch on two more things before we come to the end of our, of our show today. One is let's talk about from the buyer's perspective. If someone's looking to buy, a, buy into a franchise system, what makes a good franchisee? What are characteristics of someone that is going to succeed under a franchise model? Well, every franchisee is, or every franchise is looking for a different type of franchisee. So if someone is coming from an accounting background, there's certain franchises that that accounting background isn't going to be a good fit for that person. So it is a custom experience. You want to match what the skill set of the buyer is and what their strengths are with the franchise and the franchise, the top performers of the franchise within that system. So we do look for that. But as a generalized way of approaching it, 
the best franchisees tend to be very motivated. They're kind of the achiever mindset. They're willing to do what it takes to make the business successful. They are typically good collaborators and communicators. So they are good at asking for help and using the resources and following the system and talking to the franchise uh, company for support and for insights that help them to avoid mistakes and the expensive trial and error that happens with running a, a business. And then the other thing that I would say is that they have really good leadership skills because most franchises are looking to create scale where the owner is managing a manager and managing teams of people. And so they're the ones that are bringing this life into the business. They're bringing the energy and allowing that business to have a culture that is a thriving winning culture that people have clear instructions of what they need to do in order to win each day. And they understand how they're being held accountable and how they can grow and thrive. So that leadership skill in franchising tends to be one of the things that really makes a difference to how high and how big they can grow it. If they're good at inspiring people to be part of something, a part of something meaningful and committed to that process, then they can typically do really well with a franchise because a franchise manages and they show you how to run the operations and the logistics of the business. And what they're looking for are these people that are going to make the, give, give it the power and the energy to make it thrive. And so that's what they look for. Most franchises want those humble, smart, driven people who are willing to do what it takes and lead a team. Is that why we see a lot of former military get involved in franchises because of the structure? They like the structure they, and they're also, they have the leadership qualities. That, have you seen that? I see a lot of former military buying into franchises. Franchises love, love, love former military and service professionals, if they're firefighters, police, any of the service industries, they really do well in franchising because they understand how to work together in high-pressure situations. So when you're in a high-pressure situation of life and death, then you know that you've got to rely on your team and you've got to count on one another. So this is a situation where it's financial rewards and relationship rewards. It's not as severe as life and death, but it's that ability to come together and work through issues to help one another be clear about instructions, what to do next, like that, those skills translate extremely well. And in fact, there's programs called VetFran within the franchise community where many franchises will actually participate and give discounts to veterans because they love that type of professional so much. They're willing to work hard. They're willing to follow. They're willing to lead and they're willing, willing to do what it takes to help everyone be on the same page and marching forward together. Yeah, I, I, I love that. I love the former military, the military that get involved and, and they do, you know, the statistics show that a majority of the people that fail 
in a franchise are those that don't follow the system. And the ones that do the very best in the franchise, the top producers, are the ones that follow the proven system. But now let's talk about what makes a bad franchisee. Let's say I'm looking at buying a restaurant that's a franchise, but I'm an executive chef. I'm very creative. You know, I want to have soup du jour. I want to create my own menu, my own sandwiches and do it my way. Am I going to make a good franchisee? Well, there are franchises that are more early stages that align with more creative, inspirational type of people where they want to make the rules and kind of be influential in how the franchise is, is built. So there are options for that type of person, but they are typically you, the franchise, the higher the risk, you really need about 20 locations in order for that to be um, starting to mitigate and really that franchise system starting to, to gel as a, as a, uh, as a team. But I would say that most people that are going to want to break the rules and are not going to want to follow the system. If they're very confrontational with the franchise and they're saying like, this is, why don't you do it this way? Give me what I've asked for. Like that type of approach typically doesn't work well with franchises. They don't even get through the award process. And it's hard for some very, very successful individuals that are used to being very direct and very strong-minded and strong-willed to understand that franchising is an award process and you have to work together with a team of people. So if you're the driver director that isn't really willing to listen and collaborate and hear other people out, you, you won't even make it through the award process. And it's nothing, it's not a knock to you. It's just not what they're looking for. They look for the types of people that are going to contribute is as a team, not the ones that are just going to to drive the request. So, so yeah, if you are more of the drive the request kind of person, if you are willing to collaborate with the team, then that's the approach that you want to use and communicate during the franchise award process if you want to be approved. <laughs> Otherwise, oftentimes we see denials from that type of person on a regular basis. All right. So Sabrina's being the kind, generous, gracious person that I've always known her to be. But the bottom line <laughs> is, if you think you could do it better, you probably shouldn't buy into that franchise. And if you believe in the franchise, then you should follow their system because the stats show that those that do really well with franchises, they follow the way. And guess what? Good franchises will still listen to you. They'll listen to ideas and they have mm -hmm. a process and they may actually implement something that you have. It's not going to be overnight but they do listen to their franchisees. But if you're going to, if you know it all and you're going to be the person that wants to make every decision every single day and not follow a system, then franchise is not for you. But if you're someone that wants to be part of a successful um, process that's proven uh, and you're willing to be part of that team, I think you're in the right spot. So Sabrina, we're coming to the end of the show. It goes by quick, but I'd like you to have some, leave some parting words of wisdom on the audience, if they're out there, if they're looking to sell their franchise, existing franchise, if they're looking to buy into an existing franchise business, or if they're possibly looking at taking something to market that's an established franchise that's existing already in business generating revenue, what kind of advice would you give these people about franchises? And what's the last thing you want to want to leave them with? 
I would say that franchising is a beautiful model of replicatable success. And when it takes a little bit of time upfront to make sure that you're aligned with the system that you want to get into and aligned with the business that you want to buy. But if you do the work and you do the research properly, then you can unlock potential in yourself that you didn't even know was possible. So franchising is all about taking something that's complicated and making it structured, repeatable, simplified, and constant. And that way of operating in business is what makes successful businesses. So I would encourage anybody that's interested in either buying a franchise or getting into the franchise space and selling franchises or bringing a franchise to market to know that you're contributing to repeatable, sustainable success for people. And that is something worth doing. Sabrina, I want to thank you. I truly thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule to share your wisdom and your insight to our audience. Thank you so much for coming on today. Of course. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure. So those of you that are listening, it's been wonderful having my friend Sabrina Wall, the founder and CEO of the Franchise Brokers Association on the show today. Clearly, she's the expert when it comes to franchises. If you're looking to buy or sell an existing franchise or you're a broker looking to take one to market, the information you learned today is invaluable and will help you. And, you, and we'll, if you listen to it again and again, there are some nuggets in there that are going to make your life a whole lot easier, save you both time and effort, but also help you make money because, again, it'll help you go through the process if you understand the process. So once again, I invite you to go to ibba.org insights, where you can subscribe to the podcast by clicking the Apple, Android, or email icons. Then as we like to say, you'll never have to miss another episode of IBBA Insights again. I want to thank you again for listening. I want to thank Sabrina for being on the show. And I look forward to talking with you again on the next episode of IBBA Insights.